Thank you, choir. Well, on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in Rome, you'll find some of the most famous paintings of Michelangelo. And some of them have to do with creation. And one in particular, the creation of Adam. And you'll recognize part of that painting from the hands there of the hand of God reaching out to give life to the hand of man. And there's a complete painting, full pictures of both or figures. When I arrived as pastor of this church, I found a print of, of that hanging over the uh, conference table in my office. Those paintings, similar in concept to the stained glass that you see in this building, telling a story of the elements of the Christian faith, the faith we've begun to talk about these past few weeks. And so in a series entitled True Lines, we're seeking to understand our faith in a comprehensive way from the ground up, and we're going to take a long period of time to accomplish that. From Jude, verse 3, we've learned that we have a faith that has been once delivered to the saints, as Jude says. And so in that sense, we have the content. We are not at liberty to change it or alter it. We're simply to understand it and apply it and live out of it. It's been handed down. And so we must give ourselves to learning this faith. The truth of our faith points us to a living person, the person of Jesus. Everything in the scripture ultimately is about him, pointing to him and calling us to have an, have an eternal relationship with God through him by faith. Now, for the past couple of messages, we've talked about where we find that faith recorded for us, and that is in the Holy Scriptures. We've been talking about the Bible. Today, in the fifth message, we're going to begin to now delve into the Bible itself to learn what uh, our faith teaches. What are the true lines, true content, ultimate truth in a world that is off-center, out of focus, and broken? Now, so today we begin with this matter of creation and the creator. So in the Little Baptist Faith and Message document that I've encouraged you to pick up around the campus that is a summary of our beliefs, you'll find references to, cre to creation in various sections. And I'll allude to some of those as we go through these messages. By the way, though, let me say this. Before I move on, I just want to say one more thing about the Bible. When we put statement one up there, it says that we believe that the Bible is truth without any mixture of error, that it contains the truth. You know, we live in a world that in many quarters rejects the idea now of ultimate truth and revelation from God from outside of us is even a way of knowing. It's rejected by large quarters of our society. And I thought about uh, doing another message on the concept of truth, but I, I don't think a sermon is the best format for dealing with this matter of knowledge and truth. And so I will address that subject in another format and venue, possibly a lecture, which uh, I will announce to you when the time comes. And when I do that, we'll, we'll look at how we assert that the Bible is truth and revelation from God and how that contrasts with many contemporary approaches to knowledge, such as critical theory, or you're hearing a whole lot today about critical race theory, intersectionality, standpoint theory, postmodernism, all those are related to how do we know, how do we do life, and they don't believe in ultimate truth. 
but we do. And so I will do a whole nother, I guess, presentation on that. And I also want to say this in light of some of the things I'm going to deal with that I don't feel I can handle well from the pulpit or it's not the best context to do it. Uh, I'll be hopefully bringing some guests in along the way. And it may be meetings at other times with dinners and things of that nature to deal with some other points that we need to think about as we embrace uh, our faith. So today's message is entitled, The Creator and His Glorious Creation. And so for the next few messages, we'll be dealing with this issue of the creation. So if you have your Bibles, open them with me to Genesis chapter 1 and Acts chapter 17. Genesis 1 verse 1. The Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Then in the book of Acts chapter 17, we find Paul preaching to pagans in Athens. People that did not have his background as a Jew. And I want you to notice how Paul deals with them in Acts 17 beginning in verse 22. So he has come to Athens and he has uh, observed their idolatry. He's observed um, their polytheism. And he ends up speaking the place of the philosophers and the leaders of the city in the Areopagus. So it says in verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Creation and the creator. As we begin to grasp what our faith teaches, what are the true lines, this idea is central and foundational to everything else. The first true lines in the Bible itself right, have to do with the creator and the creation. That is no accident. The story begins that way for a reason. And so right after Article 1 in our Baptist Faith and Message, talking about Scripture, the second article you come to is on God, and it's a longer article. I'm not going to read all of it, but it begins, there is one and only one living and true God. He is an intelligent, spiritual, and personal being, the creator, which we're going to be focusing upon today, redeemer and preserver, which I'll also focus upon today, and ruler of the universe. Now, every idea of the world, all worldviews, religious views, secular views, whatever they may be, 
all of them have a story of how we got to where we are today. How did things start? Where's the beginning? And in every culture, the predominant view of the beginning or the lack of beginning shapes what that culture is like. And the reason our culture is uh, struggling today in some ways is because the consensus on that has broken down. We don't all agree on that anymore in this culture of origins, of who God is, and those kinds of things. And that's where a lot of the tension is coming from because what underlies all of the culture is, is a view about the beginnings and about the creator or the lack of a creator. So we are talking about the creator that we believe in as we begin looking today at what the Bible teaches about creation. I just want to start with some broad truths, and we'll get into more specifics as we go along. Two broad points today. First of all, I want to talk about the truth of creation. When we read the opening verses of the Bible, we see that the Scripture does not argue for the existence of God or for the reality of a separate, distinct, created order. Rather, it just assumes it. It states it. There is a creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the heavens and the earth there is mean, means everything. It's all inclusive. It's not just saying the heavens and the earth, but he's, it's a way of inclusively saying it in an idiom that everything God made. And he chose to create everything in the created order. And so he spoke the creation into existence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created all things. And if you keep reading in that passage, what does it say? Immediately it says that verse 3, and God said. So by his powerful word, he spoke the creation into existence. Those words declared to the world at that time as well that something unique, powerful, and beautiful in throughout time... Uh, uh, that, those words declared to the world, that is to the people of that time, something unique, powerful, and beautiful. And it does it throughout time, and that is that what we find in the Bible about the Creator and the cosmos, the creation, stands uniquely as a witness to the human race. In other words, when this was written in Genesis chapter 1, God is declaring to the world who He is and what He has done, and He's standing out as a witness to the world around Him. He's contrasting Himself to the other views that you find in the world, in the ancient world. And so as while in the time and the context in which the Bible was written, we find some parallels to other ancient stories. On the whole, the Bible stands uniquely in its, in its presentation of creation and, and God. Compared to the gods of the Egyptians and the other peoples of that time, the biblical creation account presents one supreme God, Ruler over all, as compared to the polytheistic views, that is the views of many gods of other ancient peoples. I think it was the theologian John Calvin who said about the Egyptians. Remember the first five books of your Bible, right, were penned in conjunction with that exodus from Egypt. So why do we have these first five books of the Bible? The point I'm trying to help you hear here, and what I'm trying to say is that God revealed himself we have this written down from Moses, and it's distinctly setting apart who the true God is from the other false gods in the world. How the world came about from the other stories of how the world came about. God is presenting himself here. And again, I think it was John Calvin who said that um, in Egypt, that there was almost no animal that for the Egyptians was not the figure of a god. But when we open the Bible to Genesis, Genesis is unique and it is straightforward, unlike the strange myths of the surrounding peoples. The God of Genesis, 
whom we will come to know as Yahweh, is personal, relational, and moral compared to the immoral, grotesque gods worshipped by the peoples around them in Egypt and the other peoples they're going to encounter as they move up into the promised land. And so this God ultimately makes his highest creation, mankind, somehow in his image or like him somehow in our makeup. And we'll look at that in a coming sermon. And so God presents himself uniquely here. There is one creator who has spoken everything into existence. He is a moral, personal being, a relational being. He is not like the pagan gods around you. He is not like their view of the world, where the world came from. He is setting himself apart in how he declares this. That's the purpose of Genesis. And then throughout time, this one true creator and his work of creation, it's always, he has always stood in contrast to the false views spawned in the fallen heart of man. And so when we go back to Acts chapter 17, where we find Paul on Mars Hill in Athens, still a cultural center in the world at that time. He went to Athens, and we find him speaking to the philosophers on Mars Hill. And he speaks to them about the unknown God, back in Acts 17, verse 23. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God, so you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. And so he talks about the true God. He used some of their own ideas and views where they had it right when he said, I quote some of your poets who say, in him we live and move and have our being. But Paul knew that on the whole their view of God was wrong. And so he distinguished the God of Scripture from their view of the gods. There is one God, he proclaims, who is the ruler of all things and that he made all things. And Paul's view of creation would have been foreign to them. Even as our view of creation is foreign now to many in our culture. The people Paul was speaking to there in Athens were comprised of largely two groups. Two philosophical schools. The Stoics and the Epicureans. And so Paul's there speaking to them on Mars Hill. These are the intellectual leaders of the ancient world. The Stoics believed in some impersonal world soul like the force, similar to what you find in Star Wars, and they believe that's how everything came about. The Epicureans believed in several gods who really had no interest in the human race. But Paul says, no, there is one God who made us. He is not served by our hands, so all of your idolatry and things you're doing, he doesn't need any of that. And so Paul here proclaims to them the truth about who God is. And you notice in this passage when Paul got to their town and he's walking through Athens before he ever starts preaching in the synagogue and ultimately on Mars Hill, the Bible says that Paul was provoked in his spirit regarding all the idolatry that he saw. Literally, he was in some way sick at his stomach. He was grieved over what he saw, people wrongly worshiping false gods. And he was so bothered by it, he had to speak up. And you and I must be people who learn to speak up as well about who is the true God. And we're going to have to start with the creation. This God stood in contrast then to the ancient world of the Egyptians and the people the Jews encountered as they went into the promised land. He stood in contrast 
to the, to the people of the ancient world much later, though, but in, in the New Testament times, like in Athens, who still were polytheists, and different views of how the world came about, he stood in contrast to them. And I want you to understand this, the God of the Bible, he further stands in contrast in his person and in his work or creation to the view of God and the creation held by some people who started this country, like Thomas Jefferson, who wrote the document that we alluded to last week the Declaration of Independence, where it says all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with inalienable rights. He talks about this generic creator. Jefferson viewed God as some being who wound up the world he made and let it run by natural law without interacting with it very much at all. Thomas Jefferson denied the Trinity. He denied the deity of Jesus Christ. Thus, he denied that Jesus Christ made the world, which the Bible says. Furthermore, he did not hold to the biblical view of God, not only in creation, but also in providence, that God is in, involved in his world, which we'll come to in a moment. And the Christians among the founders, when they saw the terms that... Um, all men are created equal, endowed by the Creator God. In their minds, they would have processed it biblically. They would have looked at the Creator differently than those who were not believers among them, like Jefferson and Franklin, who never gave his life to Christ as far as we know. And then today, today, as we think about the faith once delivered to the saints, the Creator, the Creator God and the creation He has made, he continues to stand in contrast to the options around us right now and prevalent before us today. And those options broadly are that creation is an illusion. There really has never been a beginning in any, any real sense. That comes out of the Eastern worldviews, and we see it in the New Age movement here. And the other is that everything came from nothing, and somehow the laws of nature acted to give us what we have. This is an atheistic naturalistic view. No one explains where these laws came from that sprang everything into existence. But in that view, the universe we see is an accident of time and space working through natural laws. There is no need for a creator. That's the other prevalent view. This is the view of naturalism. It is atheistic. It permeates much of academic life. It will permeate Clemson University when you go there and take your classes because that's what they hold in their departments of science, and also in their sociology departments. It infiltrates everything, naturalism. And in that view, all life begins and ends here, and eventually all of this we see will wind down and end. It has no ultimate destiny, no purpose. And unless we somehow save ourselves, which we see Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos trying to begin to help us do that by going to suborbital space and eventually going to space and colonizing other places and eventually figuring out how we can find ways that we don't die through scientific advance. That's the other view that is there. But we, we who follow the God of Scripture, we assert without apology or hesitation these things that are asserted or supported by the Bible. It stands in contrast still to this day. You have to make up your mind where you're going to stand. 
And so what do we say unequivocally? Well, we believe that the scripture teaches the universe had a beginning and that it was created out of nothing by a powerful creator. And this is implied in Genesis 1-1 that we read, but we find it in other places stated more clearly. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. And I put the scriptures listed uh, that I'll use today on the, on the screen. And you can go back and pick those up from the website. So Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Or in Romans chapter 4, verse 17, Paul puts it this way about the creation. He says, As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. He's talking about Abraham. The God who gives life to the dead and listen, and calls into being things that were not. This is referred to as creation ex nihilo or out of nothing. Thus the universe is not an illusion that has always existed as some other views teach like in Eastern worldviews. And while we don't look to science to validate our faith, we do know that disciplines such as astronomy and physics have come to recognize over the past decades that if you turn time backwards, the universe that is expanding right now would shrink up to a point where it was nothing, where it all began. And it was at that point that time began and space was created and everything that fills space and it was created by the word of this God. There was nothing except the Trinity. And he spoke creation into existence out of nothing. That's the view of Scripture. He spoke it to life. Furthermore, as you look at what we have been learning, the universe is fine-tuned to support life, which shows the hand of a designer. You know, the number of things that have to be exactly right for there to be life on this planet is staggering regarding all the factors that had to come together to support life. Too many variables to have been met by chance to produce life as we know it. Life exists, as someone has noted, on a razor's edge of factors being right. Designed, if you would, so that life would come. Even Stephen Hawking. We're not clear where Stephen stood in relationship to his view of God. The great physicist who held Isaac Newton's chair lived his life in a wheelchair, his adult life. Couldn't move anything of his body. But in his book, A Brief History of Time, he said this before he, he died. In the latter years of his life, he said, the remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers, that is the constants of physics, seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. And so the Bible teaches us that the universe had a beginning and it was created out of nothing, and while we don't look to science to confirm our belief, science increasingly comes to understand that the universe is expanding. If you went backwards in time, it would shrink down to nothing when there was nothing. How did it get here? Naturalists say out of nothing came nothing. That makes no sense to me. The scripture teaches out of nothing the powerful God spoke. We've learned from science as well, as I said, that the factors that it takes to produce life are very, very specific. 
fixed and tuned so that life can exist. And if it's just off a little bit, life does not exist. And so that's why we have a movement today called the Intelligent Design Movement, that the universe is in, designed by an intelligence that made it. And so out of that, we can say the Bible and the creation story affirms that you and I are not here by chance or without purpose. We are the highest, most magnificent part of God's good creation. He put things together to support above all human life. The point is, you matter to God. And the other worldviews that are there, you do not matter to God, for God does not exist, or God is not involved in the creation in any personal way. But the Bible says you matter to God, and he made you for a purpose. Furthermore, the creation was made and is separate from the Creator and dependent upon the Creator for life. He upholds everything by His power. He's involved with all of His creation, but He's always distinct from it. Now, I want you to turn to Colossians chapter 1 with me in your Bibles. I want you to see this, this verse. I hope you've noticed this passage in your Bible. Colossians 1, where the Bible talks about the creation. And he says in verse 15 of chapter 1, the Son, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, verse 16, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. That's talking about Jesus. Which brings us to the point that the God who made this universe is eternal with the Trinitarian nature. We talked about the Trinity last year. And the Trinity who dwells in love and has from all eternity, Father, Son, and Spirit, he chose to create all of us and all things in love. And he made us ultimately to commune with him and ultimately fellowship with him at the highest level. And so when you read the creation stories, the Father, Son, and Spirit are all involved. We just read about the Son. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God, speaking there, talking about the Father created, the heavens and the earth. And then it says, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. And you read in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image. And so the Trinity made us with a purpose. We live in a true creation from the hand of the one true and living God. And you matter to Him. That's one of the big things about our story. And again, we don't look to science to confirm what we believe, but increasingly we see that the universe was fine-tuned. The universe had a beginning, a starting point. It's not always existed there was nothing, now there is something. How did it get here? Our story is our great God, Father, Son, and Spirit spoke it into being. That's how it got here. And it has meaning, and it has purpose, and it has a destiny. The second thing I want to share with you today very quickly is I want you to consider then some important implications. The fact that we're part of creation in the hands of a powerful, loving God who is good and wise, who made all things, it gives us great confidence and comfort and assurance as we live. And again, there are a lot of great implications, but let me just limit it to a few here. And 
wind this up today. Closely tied to the idea that God spoke everything into existence is the further idea that He is in control of all things. That we can rest in His Lordship and in His providence. God is in control of His world. He interacts with His world down to the details. So I'm going to run through a few verses in the Bible with you. Do, you. do you have time for me to do that for a moment? Okay. All right. Carly's is no longer up the street anyway. And I assume you think about that. It's out on the highway. You'll get there. So, a few verses, a few passages. It reminds us how, how much God is involved in His world. He didn't just make it and wind it up and leave it to run by natural law, as Thomas Jefferson taught. He's involved in His world. He's involved in your life down to the point that you don't take the next breath. Nor do I. Apart from His will. Apart from Him holding me up. I don't live. So Isaiah 46, 8 through 11. Remember this. Keep it in mind. Take it to heart. Remember, you rebels, remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Listen to verse 10. I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. God has foreordained things in this world. If you read Isaiah 22 verse 11, He's foreordained things down there to the point of a reservoir being built. God's making a prophecy about what's coming in the future for Israel. And Isaiah 22, 11 says that you built a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. It wasn't built at this time, but it's going to be built down to the point of building a reservoir. You know, in the Old Testament, you don't find phrases there like it, uh, like it rained. No, you find things like God sent the rain and the wind. As one theologian put it, not one drop of rain falls without God's sure command. God controls everything down to the falling of sparrows to the ground in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29. Not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from your father's, not just knowledge there, but he's talking about God's control over the situation. Psalm 147, verses 4 and 5, if you would turn there real quickly. I think I heard my wife playing this one in her Bible reading this morning in the, in the bathroom as... She was listening to Scripture. In Psalm 147, verses 4 and 5. He determines the number of the stars and calls each of them by name. That's a pretty powerful being. We can't even count the stars. But this says, He determines their number, calls them by name. Great is our Lord and mighty and power as understanding has no limit. Verse 8. He covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain and makes grass grow on the hills. He provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. Even down to the death of his son, God was in control of the details of what took place. Luke records it this way in chapter 4 of Acts when he talks about God's power over down to these details in Acts 4, 27 and 28. The scripture says, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed. 
Listen, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. That is the truth declared over and over and over in the Bible. God created everything and God upholds everything by his providence down to the details of this world and he's in control of this world. And I just want to share with you that the application in our lives is I see a lot of worrying in our culture among Christians about the new cycle and about politics. Oh, you know, God's not only in control of nature, God's in control of the details of this world in every sphere of its existence. He's in control of this world down to the affairs of mankind. And so if we trust in this powerful God who creates and directs all things, we should be at peace and confident as we make our way through a troubled world. Many believers seem to have forgotten this or were never taught it or failed to have embraced it. They read Twitter, listen to the news about what's happening in the world or in politics, and they're either scared or ready to fight. I think some people need to listen to less news and stay off Twitter and other platforms and learn more about the great creator who has the providential care of the world and trust him. Blaise Pascal, a great Christian in the 17th century, a polymath, a brilliant man and philosopher, he said, we act as if it were our mission to make Trump a truth triumph, whilst it is only our mission to combat it. Pascal was talking to his brother-in-law about a controversy his brother-in-law was in and about um, political issues that were there in the world. And, and Pascal says some things like this. He says, the same providence that has inspired some with light has refused it to others. In other words, God may allow you to have the right perspective, but may design that somebody else ultimately does not have that light. Pascal says as well that you need to remember when you're for something, God in his sovereignty may raise something up to oppose it for his higher purposes. Pascal says that while you may think you know what God is doing in the world, don't have that kind of pride because you may not. And sometimes when you may think you're right and your side is winning, you're actually losing in relationship with what God wants. It calls for great humility, but it also calls for us to be able to walk with peace in the world. Because I don't have to worry, ultimately. I want to be involved in the fray of this world, proclaiming the gospel in this world, but I do not have to worry about the ultimate outcome of this world because I'm not in charge of it, and neither are you, but he is. We can rest in him. And as I wrap this up, let me just say one other thing here. There really is love and beauty in the world. They're rooted in him. In views like atheism, naturalism, there's no ultimate matters like truth. There's really nothing ultimately beautiful or right or wrong. Love is not something that's real, just an arrangement of emotional molecules for a brief time. And that's why this atheistic view taught and held by communists and many socialists in the world has led to so much death and bloodshed in the past century. It's what it leads to. The headline of the Wall Street Journal captured it uh, well, a couple of years ago, in a piece entitled 100 Years of Communism and 100 Million Dead. It is not Christianity that has led to the mass murder of human beings. Because we know that beauty and love and morality exist, they're written on our souls. This comes from the hand of the Creator who is beautiful, who is pure and righteous, who's dwelt in love forever among the persons of the Trinity. 
And this leads us to view other people and treat other people in keeping with what creation teaches us about the world. And we'll come to that in the weeks ahead. The universe then has a purpose. I have a purpose and I have a destiny. That's what the beginning of the doctrine of creation teaches us. God's desire for me is to be with him. Apart from a personal creator who takes care of his universe and all that is in it, life has no meaning. I have no ultimate meaning. But we believe that God has made things and it does have meaning. And God has imprinted that upon creation and upon our souls. And we know that life has meaning. I'm going to skip a lot here and widen up for the day. Let me just say then that that purpose which God has made us ultimately must be completed through faith in the Savior who is the central character of Scripture and why that's why Scripture was written. Have you ever thought about the sequence of how God worked here? You know, we're reading out of Genesis today. And it was written long after God had started His work to redeem. God made the world. The world fell. God destroyed the world in a flood. God called Abraham, raised up the 12 tribes. They ended up in Egypt for 400 years. Now they're coming out of Egypt, and all of a sudden God gives us the Bible. They may have had some of that in their oral tradition, but the point is that the story quickly becomes about God's plan to save, about God's plan to send a Savior. And so while the Jews had that in their mind, God's raised them up as a people. And now the message is to go to the world that I made you, I love you, I have a purpose for you, and I'm going to send a Savior to deliver you. And as Abraham put his trust in me, I want you to put your trust in my Son, and I will give you the gift of eternal life. That's why the story is here. And God wants to save a people for himself out of all the races of the earth. And we'll see more of that as we go along. So how should we respond to this today? Let me just challenge you along these lines. First, trust in this grand creator who's made you for a purpose by beginning your faith, placing your faith in Jesus if you have not. Learn to worship this great God vigorously for his glorious beauty, love, power, and righteousness, some of which we see in creation. Another way to respond today is to learn to trust in his powerful providence and live with more peace and confidence in your life. That is my challenge to us. We'll unpack this more as we go, but those are the two big trails we're going to be going down in the next few weeks. So Father, we thank you for being our great creator God who spoke everything into existence and that life has meaning and purpose. There are true things such as love and beauty and morality that come from you. We thank you that you're in control of your world, that we can rest in your providential hand, that this is our Father's world. And as the old song used to say, that though the wrong seems often so strong, God is the ruler yet. So, Father, help us to walk in trust of your providence and that you're in control down to the details and help us to live out of that with joy and confidence. And, Father, help us to tell the world about the true Creator God, Father, Son, and Spirit who made us in love and to tell people in this culture that they have meaning and they have purpose. 
Lord, we pray that you would help that message to be heard increasingly in a culture that lives with such discouragement and division and darkness. Lord, it needs to hear that message. And the only place they're going to hear it is from us. So help us, Lord, proclaim it truly. Lord, I pray as we seek to unpack creation over these next weeks that you would bless us, build our confidence in you and in your word. And Lord, I just pray that every person within the hearing of my voice would make sure they've come to know you through your son. That's the reason you wrote the Bible, was to tell us about what you have done to save and what you're doing to give us eternal life. And so we just pray that people will be willing to follow you and seek after you and find eternal life. And as Paul said in Athens, that you've designed the world and placed people in it. Lord, that they might seek after you, reach out and find you, though you're not far from any of us. As we sing now, Lord, we just pray we could uh, make commitments along the lines we've talked about. If there are others who need to come to follow in baptism or unite with this church, just grant them grace to come. And thank you, Lord, for being here with us today. In Jesus' name, amen.